Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. My special guest tonight is composer-performer Martin Graham. Martin is a much sought-after artist, author, musician, and extreme chin-beard enthusiast who hails from Arlington, Virginia. Martin crafts poetic vignettes with matching art on every topic, from the stigma of liking Scrapple to the meaning of life, in a series called The Face Zone. Surreal Daydreams to Trip Your Imagination. In his live spoken word show, he offers concise, essential truths that entertain and set the mind in motion. To further heighten the experience, he has original piano compositions from his album Trips for Piano. He is a consummate professional, a renaissance man, an award-nominated artist known for his affecting commentary, original humor, whimsical artwork, and absorbing performances. Martin, <laughs> welcome to the program. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. It is a true privilege to, to be here. Well, thank you. I'm glad you're here. For those who don't know, Martin is one of my favorite composer performers, and he's been with me before. So this is a special, special treat that he's returned. Let's begin, Martin. All right? Yeah, let's, I, I can't wait. I mean, I'm ready to go. I got my seatbelt fastened. I'd like to know, what led you to identify as a composer-performer? Specifically, does that come from a philosophical, psychological, emotional, economic, and educational perspective? Yeah, man, right out the gate, you're, you're hitting me with a, like a body shot. That's a deep question. I love that. Yeah, I think it's influenced by all those filters you listed in the question, honestly. It would help if I give you a little context. I studied Western art music for five years for my bachelor's degree, which is more popularly known as classical music. But that's actually a very specific period in Western art music. So the term Western art music would apply to any music written within the last 600 years in the Western Hemisphere there's a more artful versus commercial nature, I would say. So those two genres sometimes overlap. Beethoven, for example, is a Western art music, you know? So it's Philip Glass or the late film score composer Jerry Goldsmith, who did, like, the score for Jaws and so forth, and E.T. Lady Gaga or Led Zeppelin, those are popular music. So anyway... Uh, having been educated in the Western art tradition, the term for someone who writes music is quote-unquote composer. Chopin was a composer, right? So the term for someone who plays an instrument with ability ranging from proficiency to virtuosity would be considered a performer, quote-unquote. Of course, Chopin was also a performer. He was one of the greats. But in popular music, I would be called a singer-songwriter, right? And my compositions would be called songs. And that's because 99% of popular music has lyrics, so much so that if you ask the average person, like, you know, what they would call an instrumental piece of music, they would call it a song, 
even though there's no one singing in it. So that's kind of the really long answer to your shorter question. <laughs> so <laughs> in a sense, like that's why. I, you just given my context and education, and I would call myself a composer performer versus a singer, you know, a songwriter, because that's of a All different right. genre. All right. Thank you. Now, when you write, do you have a particular audience in mind, an ideal reader or listener? That's one of the most important questions you can ask a creative person because, you know, you know, there's this, like in Buddhism, there's these sand paintings where you make the painting and then you erase it as soon as it's done because it's about the process and not the product. But mm-hmm. like, you know, in the West, this makes more sense to me in the end. We don't erase it. We share it with someone, right? And to me, that's what completes the cycle. So it's a very important question. Now to finally answer your question, I think it was my composition professor in college that gave me the best advice I ever got regarding who are you writing for, right? So what he said to me was, know a lot of music and be very hard to impress. But then when you compose, impress yourself. Wow. So when I write a piece of music, my goal is to exhilarate and break my own heart then whoever comes across it can be impacted in the same or a similar way, depending on their background and taste. But I'm trying to break your heart, man, and I'm trying to break my own first. That's the litmus test. You know, I've had an opportunity to attend a number of performances. Now, what I've noticed is that a composer-performer's relationship with audience members is highly influenced by the social setting in which a musical event occurs. Now, can you tell me about your strategy for connecting with the audience? Dude, I love this question even more. I mean, I consider every live performance a deathbed moment. That's my own term. It's just like that's the stuff. Those are the moments, among others, you know, like things with my wife, my best friends, that kind of stuff, that are going to flash before my eyes. Those live moments. I mean, the studio is fun, but, man, those live rooms, that resonates in a different way. And so what I do is all memorized. I've literally never in my life performed a poem, told a story, or played a piano piece while I was reading for anything. For me the reason to remove that stuff is because it creates a barrier between the audience and I. So like when you watch a film, the actors aren't holding scripts. And if you can see them visibly reading from a teleprompter, it breaks the spell. So my best way of connecting with the audience is just focusing on the content of what I'm saying or playing and the associated technique to deliver it. Right. And sincerely locking eyes with everyone in the place all the while. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've opened and headlined for people who have read and they still get very nice performances, but it really, it felt like there was a membrane between them and the audience. You know, now it's time, everyone, for you to hear what I already know is incredible. Martin, it's on you. Share some of your work. All right. My live show is sometimes it's all piano, sometimes it's all spoken word with projected artwork, but ideally it's a mixture of both, which it is most of the time, I'm fortunate to say. So today we'll, mm-hmm. we'll take that approach and we'll open with a music piece. This one's called Prism.
The idea behind that piece was just how the different moments of our life, you know, they add up to light and dark and in between. And it's just, you know, that's the tagline, shifting light in this shifting life, prism. So I hope everybody enjoyed that. And at this point, we're ready to go on a linguistic trip. This is a piece I wrote during the pandemic. So it's an interesting little time capsule. <laughs> it's called Screen Locked. And since art generally goes with my pieces, I'll describe that the art picture a, an image of a laptop open, but on the screen, there's a very burned out and disheveled, sad looking person on the screen. And there are, are like prison bars over the screen. <laughs> and at the top, it's got the banner for a Zoom meeting. And it's called Screen Locked. Here we go. Before COVID-19, we were in an awful hurry to digitize every relationship. Text replaced talking, kids faced the computer more than their teacher, and love was reduced to an algorithm. <laughs> After months in quarantine, we're burned out blue from more screen light than sun, demoralized by login errors and connection failures, alienated by a grid of familiar faces we can see but not touch. Pay attention to these feelings. Sit with them. Let it all sink in. Because now is our century's chance to rethink this virtual wish come true. Screen locked. All right, next up, another poem. The art for this one's a little harder to describe since it doesn't exist in the real world. But just a Kind of a picture 
sort of a lion-esque beast, sort of a cryptid with a blotted out face that kind of looks like a shield. And this piece is called Rejects of Greek Mythology. One of our most salient human characteristics is our capacity for storytelling. Stories entertain, move, and shape us. They document, explain, and instruct. Some narratives are so powerful, so thoroughly internalized by a population, they have a greater impact than bombs. Certainly, many weapons have been discharged in defense of one coveted tale over another. But as much sway as stories hold over us, they're an arbitrary force we manufacture. Accounts become so old and well-known, we forget they could have followed a different plot line. Imagine if we had access to rough drafts. What if Medusa had a scalp of golden roses and transformed people into pure chi? What if Robert Frost had taken the highway? How about a female Christ? In an alternate version, we may just as easily have spent a childhood leaving quarters under our pillows for the scab fairy. A revised manuscript may well revise the course of an entire culture. Rejects of Greek mythology. Next up, poem-wise, is a piece called Sanguine Moves. Sanguine as in bloody. And the art for this has an image of a soul singer from the 70s or early 80s, passionately in the midst of like some fermata note that he's sustaining at double forte. And he's wearing like a white power suit, but there's like blood spattered on the image. And along the bottom, it says sanguine moves. All right, here we go. However close, the distance between perceptions is always greater than zero. Communication inevitably gaps as even the clearest messages filter through each unique consciousness. A film critic scoffs at his co-host who could not possibly have watched the same movie. A group of smart alecks light up next to a huge no smoking sign. Someone finally kisses their crush who totally recoils, mortified, having assumed the deal was platonic. From time to time, an alternative or outright misinterpretation can be more rewarding than the intended idea. Robert Frost's famously chosen road is an inspirational act of courage for risk-taking go-getters everywhere, until we learn that he meant all paths are equal, including the beaten ones. Sang and Woo is an up-tempo 1980s soul lyric by Tavasco that for years I heard as Sanguine Moves, woo-woo-woo-woo-woo-woo. Now, while it makes way more sense as a flashy ballad about finally surrendering to groovy, sweet love, I much prefer my version, where a funk-tastic serial killer disco-liciously celebrates how he gets away with it all. And breakfast has never been so profound ever since that lady on the news saw God in a slice of bread. Would you like white, wheat, or Jesus toast with your omelet? The trouble arises when truth matters most. 
A misheard song is a fun mistake. But skewed viewpoints on who won the election and whether or not we're changing our climate into a microwave are misconceptions that lead to fascism and skin cancer. So brace yourself, America, for some sanguine moves. Because fact and opinion make perilous synonyms. Sanguine moves. All right, we've got two more in this set. The penultimate piece is something a little out of season about Halloween, but it's a life lesson that's, oh, so important year-round. This piece is called Trick or Truth. The art for this one, you can picture someone crawling along in a dark crawl space with sort of a sad pumpkin jack-o'-lantern head instead of a regular head with a brain protruding out of it. (laughs) And here we go. It's called Trick or Truth. Being a horror fan, it's only natural. My favorite holiday is Halloween. The season of chilly breezes, longer nights, personified gourds, gory movie marathons, and pop-up fun houses. Most of the gimmicks they terrorized us with at those attractions are a blurred memory, except for the fake but very loud and vibrating chainsaws they wielded one year during a hayride, and another subtler moment in an exit crawl space at the end of a haunted house. In the dark, on hands and knees, I waited for the dude in front of me to shuffle ahead so the whole line of us could leave. Attitudes behind me growing as restless as mine. Eventually, the final actor ghoul had to peek inside and encourage this guy to move along. I remember hearing, it's cool, man, just keep going. As I likewise thought, yeah, what the hell? Move your ass. It took an excruciating half minute more of this to realize I was the one holding everything back. Hanging down in front of me was some tattered plastic debris the crew had fastened to the shaft for one last touch of gloom before departure, which to my confused eyesight became a paralyzing obstacle. There was nothing more blocking the path than an illusion, my own presumptive hallucination. It's the same the other 364 days of the year. So many phantom roadblocks discouraging our way forward. Trick or truth. All right, finally for this block, this is a piece called Departure. And the image for this is a picture of a woman asleep with a gray cat asleep on top of her head next to her and a burst of yellow light, sort of like the sun, coming from the background. And it's called Departure. It all ended with me hanging up on her in mid-argument as I angrily boarded a bus to New York City. But that's not the reason we never spoke again. It all started when I arrived. At 3485 Parkview Drive, Benton, Salem, Pennsylvania. What a time that was, beaming with love, laughter, daydreams, and cats. Sometimes trips to the movies, the arcade, or the ocean. She was a treacherous cook, 
but she made it with heart, so we ate it with humor and then ordered out. We were bright and connected. I could tell her everything. Once I grew older and less dependent, the manic turned oppressive, keeping her in bed for days, then weeks as food spoiled and litter boxes overflowed. She became dark and volatile. I couldn't tell her anything. Unwilling to suffer their shocked faces over a dramatic remark or a brown Christmas tree still up in July, I avoided having other kids over and eventually myself longed for escape. So I did, with the help of other family and friends. It would take a quarter century across a dozen zip codes to find home again all the while at a great distance from my mother. Yet she was there all along. In my unconventional sense of humor, my fearless conversation, I'll talk to anyone about anything. In my compassion, my cat obsession, my audacity to dream huge and act on it. Most of all, in my unshakable belief in love. I'd be none of it without the formative light of our most luminous moments. I really wish she were around to hear all this. But you already know how it ended. And that's departure. And with that, we depart from this block of my set. You know, as I stated earlier, thank you, Martin. You are an incredible composer, performer. And as I enter my sixth year being the host of this podcast, I've had an opportunity to hear hundreds of poets and spoken word artists. Now, your spoken word style is different. Can you describe it? Is what you write technically poetry? Yeah, I love this question because this is something that I've asked myself along the way over the years. Yeah, and in our line of work, it matters, right? Uh, I describe my writing as poetic prose vignettes. It's usually punctuated sentences and paragraphs, right, versus the sort of chunked A grammatical stanzas that formal poetry often is. But at the same time, you know, there are any number of artful linguistic flourishes along the way, and sometimes a piece will strip down into a freer, leaner, more poetic verse. So is it poetry overall? I think so. (laughs) And that I artfully express ideas in a short space that don't always follow the formal rules of subject, verb, object, academic prose, right? It's poetry of its own style, much in the way my music is quote-unquote classical overall, but it's really its own hybrid style. I'm wondering, why don't you write rhyming poetry? When you take poetry into its long historical arc, a lot of it rhymes, right? And actually now there are hundreds and thousands of rhyming poems being written today, right, in the form of hip-hop and popular song lyrics. So it's a legitimate style to work in, but I feel like in the absence of music, it becomes aesthetically archaic in 2023. The way, like, if you watched a movie that was like, 
sped up black and white film that would like harken back to Charlie Chaplin and it would be hard to be moved by now, even though you might like recognize, Oh yeah, that guy was a craftsman and that was cool. But yeah, it's, it's like a, a penny farthing bicycle or a, you know, or like corsets or something. It's just something of a different time, except in the realm of popular music of pop and hip hop. Then it's my God, then it's an asset. Then it's like part of your chops, which is pretty cool. Because, you know, humans aesthetically judge things, things that are, like, valuable socially and things that are, aren't in terms of, like, social capital at any given time in history. And right now, rhyming is currency of hip-hop and pop, but it's, it's not these days in terms of poetry, I think. It doesn't it, – that's not to say that people couldn't write one. I know somebody mm-hmm. who writes rhyming poetry occasionally that's pretty damn good. But, yeah, it's, it's not the norm now. It's a hard way to reach people now. You know, early in my career, I spent a lot of time attempting to memorize my work, every poem for every performance. I can't do it now. (laughs) I can't do it now because, one, I'm old, and, two, I don't want to do it anymore. What is your view Mm -hmm. on memorization of a performance versus reading it? Well, I hope you won't be... Threatened by my answer. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> but let's, but let's give it a sh- let's give it a shot. Right, At sir. least let's put it this way. So you are you're a little you're I don't, if you don't mind is it okay to ask you how old you are? Yeah, sure. Oh, you expect how me to answer? Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I just turned sixty. For, for just- for just a, oh man, for just a, for just a second, I'm the interviewer. Okay, so so just turn six. So man. next year, so next year, I'm going to be fifty. So we're not all that far apart. It's a decade, but it's a decade, but it's it's not so many years. So, all right. So at least this is the way I feel. A decade behind you, I will say. I feel like if I read, it's a barrier between the audience and I. It's like when you watch a film, you don't see the actors holding scripts, right, on the Muppet Show. You didn't see Jim Henson working the strings. So I want as little barrier between the audience and I as possible. And I feel like the performances, excuse me, are more powerful and directly pointed at people when they don't have a prop sticking up in the middle of the shot. Right. Now I understand, I understand there are some African, there was a couple of African-American poets I saw in, in February who spoke to this issue in a different way I hadn't thought of. When you think mm-hmm. back to like Frederick Douglass and the sort of risks he took to become literate, the idea of holding up something and being able to read from it, if you're an African-American, that sort of has a, that has a different, a different historical arc to that, which I also respect, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, I personally find that when I read from the page, it, I, I lose contact with the audience. And mm-hmm. another thing that I value about memorizing the work is that it forces me to learn what to do with my face and body during a performance, which actually adds to the delivery. It's like something that stand-up comedians do all the time, but that poets forget to think about, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I especially love it when I don't even have to stand in front of a microphone and I can actually walk around and speak naturally while at the same time poetically because I've crafted the content. It's very powerful when you get within like six inches of a person with a with a hook and a poem. Man, that moves them much differently than when you're 20 feet away at a mic, right? Mm-hmm. And perhaps most importantly, 
when I memorize my pieces, it forces me to notice things about the text that I don't otherwise see. So about 40% of the time when I go to memorize a piece, I realize edits that need to be made that I would absolutely not have otherwise seen because your attention is so much different when you're trying to memorize than when you're just trying to proofread. So it becomes this invaluable feedback loop that I, that I depend on. So memorization definitely adds a lot of preparation burden, but, you know, how good do you want your set to be? And that's like, that's what I ask myself. And I use it in part, frankly, to as insulation from the horrible Northern Virginia commute I have to do on the way home most days. <laughs> and so I rehearse my set out. So I'll, I'll memorize the thing while I'm like vacuuming the house over the course of an hour, right? And then on the way home over the course of three weeks, I'll like, you know, I will recite the set in the car and it helps me practice. And it also helps not make me angry about the red light that's going to last five minutes. Right. You know, I will share that I do miss those days when I would stand in front of a crowd having memorized my work. Those are some good days, I must admit. I must oh. admit those are some good days, some really good days. It really is. It's, it breaks the whole, the, all the barriers. I even take my glasses off so that even though I can't see them <laughs> quite as well, there mm -hmm. is nothing guarding my eyes. There's no barrier when I do that stuff. That's very important to me. Mm. And maybe you not know, to everybody, but to me, I think it's part of what drives the vibe of my show that keeps people, like, coming back. Very nice. I like that. You know, as I listened to your words, as I listened to your music, there was an underlying melancholy feeling that I mm. took away from it. An underlying sense of an underlying sense, I don't know, I won't say sadness, but just a somewhat of a heaviness, I believe. Now, what I'd like to know is, does it hurt you to compose and perform poetry? If not, why not? I love this moment because I totally interpreted you gave me a sort of an outline of some of the questions ahead of time and i totally interpreted this in a different way and sort of thought about a different answer but i love the new insight into this question that i just got so you're getting me really like you know this is the robes off i'm just like you know kind of intellectually naked here yeah it's what can i say off the top of my head i think the creation of art is the process of distilling pain into bliss. Oh, wow. And that's, that is, you know, right off the top of my head, so it must be true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, okay. So, it, uh, yeah, I, like I said in an earlier question, I, in my answer to one of your earlier questions, I think, was that when I write a piece, I'm trying to kind of break my own heart first, and then mm. if I succeed in that goal than anybody who is remotely susceptible to the spell I have to cast, it's going to break their heart too, right? And, mm -hmm. the, and the thing is about humans is, you know, I, yeah, you know, on the far, far, far end, you got the sociopaths, you got the serial killers of the world, right? And right. then like on the other hand, on the other hand, you got the Dalai Lama. And I lean mm -hmm. more toward that end. I, I, I believe that like, 
I don't believe in reveling in pain or maximizing pain, but I do believe in recognizing that pain is a part of life. And one of my favorite authors, Charles Bukowski, used to say what a, one of the things a poem can do is take agony and frame it on a wall. And it's just, wow, that's, all, that's actually making me tear up right now, that line, mm. because that's exactly what it does, right? It's just mm-hmm. like the power of art is to put a lasso around the demons that taunt us and pull them in close and try to understand them and maybe even relate to them out of compassion and like come out the other side a better person. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe that's all I got to say about that one. I'm going to put a full stop at the end of that. All right. Ben. But I'm going to ask you a question that's a little different, one that that just came to mind. So when you think about poetry and music, I've asked this question many times on my show. Is poetry slash music building a wall or letting your guard down? Usually when you posit a polar question, the answer will be somewhere in between, but I'm not sure. (laughs) I I mean, usually that's the way it goes statistically because Mm -hmm. the pattern of the question, but I have to actually think about that with poetry. Is it that way too? Can you ask me the question again, if you don't mind? I feel like I'm in court. Can you state it again? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm known to throw a question. I'm in poetry court. This is poetry court, man. (laughs) Well, I usually... What I usually ask, is writing a poem Mm. letting your guard down or building a wall? But because you are a composer, performer, I threw the Mm. the added piece of music in it. Just wondering. Yeah, I love that. I love that question. I love that question. For me personally, Mm -hmm. I think everybody everybody would have to answer that differently. This is an artist-to-artist answer. But I think yes. for me, the answer is both, but usually it's it's tearing down a wall. Mm. Like that's sort of my mission is to tear down wall. Like my mission is to vibrate eardrums and touch hearts. And to do okay. that, like kind of writ large, you have to knock down walls. But on the other hand, because I work in a sort of, seems like a contradiction in terms, but I sort of work in this kind of Baroque minimalism, both in piano and in poetry, I try to use the minimum number of words or notes as possible to make my point where everything counts, but mm-hmm. it's also, it has some flair to it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, I have to put up a wall to things that don't serve the purpose of that piano piece or poem. I have okay. to be very strict and very lean and, you know, like for my poems or mm-hmm. my poetic prose, we'll say, Nothing ever exceeds a single page. That's my rule. Because if I can't, I'm not saying other people should should have this rule. For mm-hmm. me, if I can't, no matter what topic you give me, right, and if I can't distill it down to a page or less and move you about it, then it's it's not it's not the prescription that I'm into, man. That's the, that's the pill I want to swallow. That's, that's, oh, wow. that's sort of the, the template I've set up for myself. So Martin, and I've gotten so, I've gotten, I've gotten so passionate. I've lost what the original question was, but that's kind of that's fun. Okay. Okay. Uh, sometimes that's it's okay. fun getting lost in the okay. jungle, right? Yes. As long as yes, there's no is. tigers waiting for that's me. Right. <laughs> well, we're in this thing together, my friend. So what I'd like to know before you share some more of your work is how do you avoid 
emotional breakdowns during the performance of especially sensitive personal material, the piece about your mother departure, for instance. I think that's one of the pieces where I heard sense of melancholy. Yeah, I thank you for that question. The answer is, in terms of how do how do I avoid emotional breakdown? The simple answer is I don't. I just let okay. it come. I mean, All it's right. it's really never happened before. Well, it's happened here and there, but never to the extent that it's happened with the piece about my mom. The mm-hmm. last three times I performed that piece in Northern Virginia and D.C. in front of a crowd, I absolutely broke down after the last line. I didn't see wow. it coming any of the times. Like every time I thought, oh, this is the last time for this. You got that out of your system, right? Nope. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But just, I mean, just went with it, and, it, and I considered it part of the piece, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what the poetry is supposed to do. It's supposed to make us feel the human condition, right? So why hide it? There was an mm-hmm. anecdote I came across recently about Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now, where he yes. performed a scene in that movie that so intensely, he literally had a freaking heart attack on set, and they kept mm-hmm. the shot for the art, right? So, yeah, put emotion in there. Now, that said, if it's phony, mm-hmm. then it's conspicuous, it's gross and it soils the whole thing. So, poetry kids, don't try for waterworks, but don't avoid them either, as long as it doesn't screw up the clarity of your words. Wow. You know, talk about synchronicity. I've always known that you were my brother from another mother because I have a piece huh. too, Shelling Beans, that I've recited hundreds and hundreds of times. I you love know. that one, by the way. No offense, not to interrupt you, but I love that one. I've read that one. Haven't heard it, but I've read it, and I love it. Well, the last three times that I've performed that piece, and I, that piece was written in 1994, I choked up. Oh, wow. I ch- oh, literally wow. choked up, and I've performed that hundreds and hundreds of times. And initially, it made yeah. me feel like, What's wrong with me? You know, I'm a professional. I shouldn't choke up. But I did. And the world didn't cave in. The world didn't cave in. And that's right. And maybe, like, when you take professionalism to a spiritual level, it involves Mm -hmm. allowing those kinds of outbursts, those kind of volcanic eruptions, but then still having the performative grace to sort of rein them in after a minute and continue and then people are just floored. And like I said, you don't ever try for that because that soils no. the memory of whatever no. you're trying to do. Then it becomes exploitation. But mm-hmm. if it's like tonight mm-hmm. I didn't break down, right? Oh, mm-hmm. like, you know, when I read that one. But if it ever happens, just go with it. That's all I mean. All right. Well, speaking of continuing, please share some more of your work. All right. So... I think the next thing we're doing is a piano piece, and this one is called After, and the tagline for this one is A Soul to the Sky. And if you can remember, about a half hour ago or whatever it was when I did the piece about my mom, this, I suppose, would be the accompanying piano piece.
So hopefully that wasn't too much of a of a bummer with the backstory. But uh, yeah, sometimes you just need to say what needs to be said, whether that's in words or in music. And now we're going to change the tone, change the mood, brighten things up a bit with a piece called Hounded, which is one of my poems. The art that goes along with this one has three dog faces kind of arranged sort of in an in upside-down triangle with the point at the bottom. There's not a triangle around them, but they're positioned in that way. <laughs> and there's a, there's a dachshund, there's a, there's a white terrier, and there's a, a Springer Spaniel at the bottom. And they're all making very vicious faces despite how cute they are. <laughs> and it says hounded at the bottom. And here we go. Here's the story. J.R. was my uncle's dachshund, an adorable little brown hot dog who bit me on the mouth. At just four years of age, that was to be my first of many unfortunate canine encounters. A high school friend's West Highland white terrier, Rudy, would go 100% berserk when I came over. If we wanted to hang out there, her parents had to physically restrain Rudy, an otherwise lovely animal, until we escaped to the basement rec room. And even then, he would pace and snarl along the other side of the door for the entire visit. And remember, dog time is seven times as ours. J.R. was my uncle's dachshund, an adorable little brown hot dog who bit me on the mouth. At just four years of age, that was to be my first of many unfortunate canine encounters. A high school friend's West Highland white terrier, Rudy, would go 100% berserk when I came over. If we wanted to hang out there, her parents had to physically restrain Rudy, an otherwise lovely animal, until we escaped to the basement rec room. And even then, he would pace and snarl along the other side of the door for the entire visit. And remember, dog time is seven times ours. So that pooch had some committed animosity for me. During college, there was Cinnamon. Such a sweet name for such a sweet-looking white and copper spaniel. An interesting case, this one. She would bare teeth when I tried to leave. It got so that her owner had to create a diversion while I ran to the exit. On lucky occasions where I found her asleep, I would tiptoe past to the front door like an escaping prisoner, shuffling around a tired but vicious guard named Cinnamon. <laughs> Is it any wonder I'm a cat person after such a Pavlovian history? There have been exceptions, I admit. Lily, Beagle Pointer Mix, is as amiable and chill as they come. A colleague has a basset hound named Emmy Lou who just wants to flop near me and score a treat once in a while. I also have an unlikely fascination with Neapolitan Mastiffs because their faces look like drawn curtains of pure droop. Even met one called Blue at a pet store. Despite his gargoyle likeness, he simply lacked the energy to give a shit. <laughs> Only six months old, and it still took all his effort just to sit there and drool. It was kind of zen. That said, maybe it's time to re-examine my aversion. If some are okay, couldn't any of them be a Lily, an Emmy Lou, or a Blue under different circumstances? 
not knowing better as a kindergartner. I did, in fact, get down on the floor and touch my nose to JR's before he tried to eat my lips. And Rudy probably wanted to kill me because I arrived in an overwhelming Halloween costume our first meeting. Still trying to figure out it was up Cinnamon's ass, but it could have been my tension, my own aura of mistrust triggering a negative feedback loop. The way people's reactions range from ugly to uplifting, depending on my approach. We get what we give in this circular life. Hounded. All right. So we're coming up on our next piece in the set. This one is called The Forced Will Eat. The art that goes with this one has this, well, it's not very pleasant. <laughs> it kind of has this cartoonish kind of face, kind of stretched out with an alarmed expression with this unpleasant thing crawling toward its mouth that it doesn't want to consume, but clearly has to. And it's called The Forced Will Eat. 500 channels not worth watching. Yet American televisions glow ubiquitously, preferable to boredom and loneliness. Urban food deserts abound with plenty of nothing nutritious. But Ronald McDonald keeps raking it in because fast food beats fasting altogether. And all those insurance policies, every one a ripoff, still we sign up in a hurry to survive that fatal alternative, living in the land of captive consumption. The forced will eat. All right. This next poem is a story about a person that's dear to me. It's called Forgiving Larry. And the art for this one has... Three images of a real person that I know, one from when he was about four or five, one from middle school, one from recently, and they've all kind of have a different backdrop behind them, and certainly as they get older, they get grimmer in, in mood. And you'll see why after you hear Forgiving Larry. A guy I've known since the ninth grade is headed to jail in a week for something darkly serious. Most everyone else in his life has cut him out completely, in part because he didn't own up right away. <laughs> to that unforgiving majority, is it reasonable to expect gracefulness from a person on fire, even if he set the blaze? I get the reaction, though. In the midst of all this emotional fallout, they're burning, too. Who will reemerge from that front gate on release day? What further variation on my friend will I meet there? We got together one last time a couple Sundays ago. He was already on house arrest with a bigger cloud looming over his future than any in the rainy sky outside. But for a few hours, playing cards in the kitchen, music going, pizza, a little whiskey for me, we found a patch of sun, a simple, peaceful groove. 
like the days when the whole gang of us was more innocent. And that's Forgiving Larry, which I have. The next piece in our block called Numerology. This one's a little hard to describe because it's so abstract, but the, the artwork for this is a face that's made out of the numbers 1, 7, and 0, flipped and inverted and all sorts of stuff to make the face work. <laughs> but the piece is called Numerology. Here we go. It first appeared to me in a classic song lyric out of my parents' television, where a chorus line of tuxedos and top hats strutted along to Dublin and Warren's 1935 hit, about a quarter to nine. From then on, every time I'd have the sudden urge to look at a clock, like a silent internal alarm, the display would say something 44. 244, 644, 844, always 44. Eventually, the phenomenon spread to other spaces and situations. One summer afternoon, a wild thunderstorm had disheveled our balcony furniture. So I went outside to fix things and noticed a sticker on an overturned seat cushion, proudly announcing it had been checked by quality control inspector number 44. Excited to document this find, I ran into the kitchen where I'd left my camera next to the digital oven clock, which at that fateful moment read precisely 444. <laughs> really? <laughs> when I interviewed for my job at West Potomac High, I felt an unusually good vibe compared to the other schools and jumped at their offer only later to discover all my classes would be in room 444. More incredible. On the first day of school, I randomly overheard an administrator telling another teacher that students' locker information was on their schedule. Not realizing this, I immediately looked down at the top sheet of the stack I was holding to find it listed that first kid's locker number as Q44 with combination 43, 1, 45. Really? I commemorated finally turning 44 with ink. Driving back from that tattoo appointment, I received the best of reassuring omens by getting stopped at a red light behind the 44th public bus in the fleet. Consequently, I decided I'm going to live to 88 because that's 44 doubled and there are 88 keys on a piano, which holds additional importance for me as a composer. Plus, half the keys are black and the other's white, like a yin-yang. Certainly, the first half of my life was darker than this one. But that's a whole other projection. That's what all this is, right? My subconscious keeping score, willing me to find a pattern, or am I actually glimpsing one tiny corner of a vast cosmic shape I lack the bandwidth to perceive in total. doesn't even matter since I derive significance either way. Maybe the mystique is in the ambiguity and how each conspicuous occurrence rests somewhere between coincidence and destiny. It was disappointing when they pulled back the curtain in The Wizard of Oz because the magic was in the wondering. For now, 
I'll stay on this particular brick road with open eyes and open mind, enjoying the search, even more so the mystery. And I should definitely play the lottery. I don't know why I keep forgetting to do that. <laughs> All right, the last one in our block before we put this set to rest is called The Longest Rest. And it's basically just a peaceful face with closed eyes in the artwork. And now here we go with the text for The Longest Rest. One of my personal favorites, actually. Have you ever dozed off during a movie, woken up during the credits, and been surprised to find you missed the entire film? Sleep sneaks up on you like that. Or a seldom open desk drawer reveals an outdated driver's license, and you marvel at how much more taut you looked back then. Age creeps up on you like that. Maybe instead of an ID, that old photo is in a high school yearbook surrounded by signatures, inside jokes, and references to future plans you no longer recognize. Life gets away from you like that. Unless you pay attention, cherish time, follow through, so that when you lay your head down the very last night, there's nothing left to dream. The longest rest and the end of that set. Wow. I need a minute to allow all of that to permeate through my system, my friend. Thank very you. powerful. Me too. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Very, very powerful. You know, I believe that as we age, growth and development also sets our mind in motion. Yeah. So what I'd like to know is, as a composer-performer, how has your work evolved or changed with age? Oh, yeah, it's absolutely evolved, thankfully. Yeah. You know, I think my early poems are more humor-centered, observational, and surreal in a way. The same with the earlier accompanying images. And I love some of those. And, and some of those will make it into sort of the best of book that I'm going to put out the end of this year or early next year. But lately, I'm more drawn to personal stories presented in poetic form. On the musical end, the stuff I'm writing toward my second album is more sophisticated than the first while still retaining that crucial element of accessibility that the first album has. I'd say I'm exploring textures and harmonic progressions that I haven't done before, but it still sounds like me, right? Like the same person pressing their thumbprint on new surfaces. One of the things I'd like to know is throughout the course of your time being a composer, performer, what has surprised you the most? <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. I never would have thought to ask that of myself or someone else, but that's why you're mm -hmm. here, man. You, you're the great interviewer. <laughs> For me, I, I guess it's the limit. You know, I'm, I'm lucky to be a pianist because 
you know, the piano is limitless. It really is. Like, I would say the limitless possibilities of the piano is my answer to that question, is what's most surprising mm-hmm. to me again and again. It's like a Rubik's Cube with a zillion solutions. I guess it's like a typewriter in that way. It's just like both the typewriter and the keyboard, they're just waiting for a million different people to write a million different stories in their own styles. And yet those two mechanisms that can handle all of those different visions and that just fascinates me, just felt hammers and wood banging on these strings. And it somehow tells a story across ages and that just blows my mind. Would you please favor us with one more piece? Uh, We should end with, like we began, with some music. So I think the last one we should do is called Laura. It's about my wife, who is the most extraordinary person I've ever come across. And the tagline for this piece, well, it's beautiful, resilient fire. So Laura, beautiful, resilient fire. It's It's a story without words. See if you can follow it.
you know, that particular piece was beautiful, exquisite. And I'm wondering, mm. have your favorite compositions and poems arrived, or are they still on their way? <laughs> Both, <laughs> which is how I know I'm in a really good place in the creative journey. I am absolutely head over heels in love with the pieces on the first album, and yet the pieces I've written in the second, toward the second album, so leave it. It's just like, it, you know, if somebody else came up with them, I'd be as excited about them. It just happened to be me, right? I just happened to find these, these series of four-leaf clovers. It's both, really. And I think I still have a long path ahead. So there's a new album on the horizon. My question was going to be, what's next for you creatively? Well, in general, always what's next for me creatively is just like variations on my themes, right? I'll continue to craft linguistic, visual, and pianistic landscapes for people to lose themselves in. But, you know, it happens in sets. I've published three books of art and poetry under the series mm -hmm. called The Face Zone because the artwork always has a face of some kind. And so mm -hmm. next I'm going to be doing kind of a best of with a little bit of new material in it. And that may be the last book. We'll see. And uh, the piano, yeah, I'm working toward Trips for Piano Volume 2. But at this day and age, it's really all about singles. So what will probably end up happening is over the course of a couple of years, I'll end up releasing a number of singles through, you know, with, my, with the help of my terrific PR firm in New York City. And we'll get some eyes and ears on some new videos and just get some people on, the, on board that want to go on this trip. And then hopefully, you know, when I have enough singles with enough traction, I'm hoping I can attract, you know, a major record label to pick up what I do and help me distribute this vision to more people. That's really what it's all about to me. I'm really, my legacy is to vibrate eardrums and touch hearts. That's, that's what it's about for me. Well, where can we find you and where can we find your work? Well, thanks for asking. There's two places you can go. If you're into the music, you can go to tripsforpiano.com. That's the word for, not the number for, tripsforpiano.com. If you're more into the poetry and artwork, you can go to thefacezone.com. And both of those also have events pages where I update regularly about up upcoming performances I'm doing, which at the moment are in the DMV. But uh, with any luck in a, in a few years, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll be a national phenomenon, but we'll see. I just, like I said, I just want to, I just want to resonate and touch people. That's really what it's all about for me. All right. In my eyes, you're already a phenomenon, my friend. You already are. Well, that, I want to thank that means you. a lot to me. And Thanks, thank buddy. For, well, I want to thank you for gracing us again with your music and your poetry. Again, as I said earlier, you're a consummate professional, and thank you. All right, everyone. As I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, Martin. <laughs>